Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit will come and speak to us and teach us words that might just be words to us were it not for the power of your spirit speaking through them. Help these words to encourage our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah chapter 62. We're going to spend almost all our time in this one chapter. Isaiah 62, beginning in verse 1. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication, and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. So it isn't always easy to know what to do with the Old Testament prophets. And this is a problem, really, because almost 30% of the Old Testament is the writings of the prophets. So, you know, just think about it in general. The, the kind of sermons you hear, or the things we dwell on, or what we talk to our kids about. We're not too bad with the Old Testament stories. We know those stories. We know how to tell those stories. And, and often we can find common ground, common emotional ground with the psalmist or or the Proverbs, there's a lot, makes a lot of sense. Or, or maybe if we're in the right context, even Song of Solomon will work. Or, or if you've ever felt, uh, you know, a little down on life, Ecclesiastes is making a lot of sense to you when you read that. Of course, we love the Gospels, right? I mean, stories about Jesus and what he did. And, and Acts, the story of the church, that's pretty straightforward. And even the letters of Paul. Even though we don't ever really seem to agree on exactly what they're saying, at least we all have a theory, right, on what Paul's talking about? And while many, if not most, Christians are highly Daniel and Revelation averse, we're that rare breed who love those books and actually find identity in those very books. So, so most of the Bible we're pretty good with, and truth be told, there's lots of material there, and we spend most of our time on it. So much so that we almost never have to actually spend time with the Old Testament prophets, except for Daniel, but he's just different somehow. But to happily bounce along our Christian way while wholly ignoring the prophets is at least careless, if not actually a danger to our souls. Yet who wants to spend your limited devotional time on something that's difficult to understand. I mean, I get it. You only have so long in the morning to read the Bible. So you're going to go to the prophets, you're going to read a chapter, and you're going to be like, what? Or you're going to go somewhere and read a story that makes sense, right? So we continue today in our first series of the year, a series called Banner Year, a series focused on passages from the Bible where banners are mentioned. Now, that's kind of an unusual theme, and because of that, one result in this series has been it's taken us some places we probably wouldn't have gone if we hadn't picked this rather strange theme. We started with the book of Exodus. We're in Old Testament Bible stories, but, but since that time, we went to Isaiah 49. 
Okay, other than the sermon we did on that a few weeks ago, when was your last sermon on Isaiah 49? If you can call that up, I'm impressed. <laughs> and Pastor Steve took us to the Psalms, but then we went to Jeremiah 50. And last Sabbath we did the Saul of Solomon, but here we are again today in Isaiah, Isaiah 62 to be exact. And these are the words we find. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. All right, those are all English words. And we know what all those English words mean. But when we put them together in this construct right there, what does it mean for us? Now, if we were to go very literal with these words, and there are those when they go to the Bible who say, we need to go very literal with everything. If we were to go very literal with these words, the clear implication would be that God was about to intervene positively on behalf of an ancient city called Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah in a way that would make kings of other lands see that God is with Israel, or at least God is with Judah, and will not allow Judah or Jerusalem to be destroyed. That would be a simple reading of the text, right? But there are problems with this highly literalistic interpretation, not the least of which is it doesn't seem as though God kept this promise in a literal way. Either that or the prophet completely misunderstood what God was saying and wrote the wrong thing down. And I think we have a problem with both of those possibilities, don't we? Neither of these views is tenable for us, for the one runs counter to our understanding of God's faithfulness to his promises, and the other runs counter to our understanding of what it means to be a prophet and receive the word of the Lord. So in the context of that, is it any wonder we avoid these passages? For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. There's some really neat imagery and wordplay going on in these verses and then in the two verses that follow. I want you to specifically notice verse 2, this idea that after the vindication, God will call them by a new name. This is an interesting concept that comes from a time when names actually meant something. They actually carried a significant meaning, unlike today when we rarely choose a name uh, with a meaning in mind, or if, or if we did choose a name for a child with a meaning in mind, we didn't necessarily mean that that name had to be formative for them for their whole life. I mean, that's just not really how we think anymore, is it? That would be so unfair that the parents would, by name, seek to preordain a future for their child, totally bypassing their independent decision-making. It's, it's just un-American. We just don't think like that. I mean, anymore, we aren't even supposed to allow genetic gender at birth to be preordaining, far less that we would limit choice based on how you're named. 
Do you remember Peekaboo Street? Does anybody remember Peekaboo Street? The, she was a skier. She was a downhill skier um, that was on the U.S. Olympic team some years ago. You've got to be a little older like me to know who Peekaboo Street was. But that's kind of a funny name, right? Did you ever hear the story of how she got her name? That's a great story. She had, she had classic hippie parents who didn't want in any way to predetermine the decision-making of their children, so they refused to give them names because they thought that might actually skew them somehow. They wanted them to name themselves when they got old enough to do it. So actually, her earliest passport as a child, the passport says Little Girl Street. That's the name on that passport. So she finally got old enough to talk and, and choose a name for herself, and what do you think a little kid's going to choose? Peekaboo. She loved it until she was 12. <laughs> and she admitted later in interviews, yeah, I think I might have gone with something else if I had to do that again. Just an aside, are we playing the proper role in our kids' lives? Or are we in the name of free will creating for so many of them a perfect Babylon of confusion? by flooding them with options and opportunities, but failing to instill in them principles and values that will enable them over time to actually confront opportunities and options with free will. But back to this theme of the new name, this idea from the text. There were times in the history of the patriarchs that after a significant change in reality came, God would bestow a new name. You remember Abram? What did Abram become? Abraham. Abram meant exalted father. Abraham meant the father of many. So it was a change in meaning. Then there was Sarai and Sarah. Sarai means a princess. Sarah means the princess. It kind of went to the next level there with that one. It means the source of the nations. Then you had Jacob, the deceiver, became Israel, struggles with God. It didn't just happen that way. Sometimes earthly rules did this. Pharaoh Necho, after the death of King Josiah, came into Jerusalem, and Eliakim had been put on the throne and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Then you had, and we cringe every time we hear it, but that's what the Bible said, God's servant, Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> later on changed the name of Mataniah to Zedekiah, and then, of course, you remember, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what did they become? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, it happened. There were moments of, of significant transition that led to new names. So the implication here in our text in Isaiah is that a significant change in reality is coming to some group that's identified initially as Zion and Jerusalem, and that this change is going to come from the hand of God himself in the form of a deliverance, in the form of a vindication, and as a result of the vindication, God is going to bestow on them a new name. So let's continue reading and see what else we can learn. Verse 3, you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, 
For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. So there's a change in name. No longer deserted and desolate, but now Hephzibah and Beulah, or to stay with the Hebrew, no longer Ozubah and Shemamah, but now Hephzibah and Beulah. So God's going to change the name of the people from Ozubah to Hephzibah and the land from Shemamah to Beulah. Awesome. What does it mean? Okay, and this is what happens to us sometimes when we read this. We don't know because we don't know the language. Well, Ozubah meant one being forsaken, as in a woman who was abandoned. But Hephzibah means my delight is in her, as in a woman who will never be abandoned. Shemama means desolation, as in a land left desolate. Beulah means married, literally, as in the land forever claimed and attached to God. So the promise associated with this vindication is a new name, and not just a catchy new name, but a new name full of new meaning, painting the picture for the reality to come for the land and for the people. They are to be no longer forsaken or desolate, but they will forever be delighted in and forever attached to the Lord. Listen to this next verse, verse five. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. It seems that the Lord desires a permanent union with Zion and Jerusalem, a union of intimacy and closeness and joy. But at this point, we need to ask ourselves a question. To whom is the prophet referring, and what does this message mean? There has been for many years considerable debate in the academic community as to when exactly the words of Isaiah 62 might have been written. Now, not necessarily just specifically on chapter 62, but in the larger discussion, the traditionalist view attributes the whole of Isaiah to the writing of a single prophet named Isaiah who lived and prophesied in and around Jerusalem from around 740 B.C. to around 686 B.C. But other scholars have come along and they want to break the writings into two or three parts, attributing sections to authors at later times. The first section earlier, then middle, and then later. Now again, an aside, there are seemingly valid textual reasons for this thinking. If you've spent much time with the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39 are are highly apocalyptic in their tone. They're, they're visions and there's, there's imagery in those visions and lots of discussion of destruction and so forth. But then the book seems to take a turn around chapter 40. And from chapter 40 to 55, there's a completely different feel. It's more conciliatory and it's very focused on a redeemer figure. While then 56 to 66 seems to return not so much to the theme of imminent destruction, but rather to a theme of deliverance and restoration. Our text for today falls in that deliverance and restoration section. Now, while I can respect the scholarship that has suggested that these different realities could not come from a single author, I myself find the arguments based simply on style and content to be rather unconvincing 
for one particular reason. That reason is Ellen White. Now, my basis is not that Ellen White believed there was only one Isaiah. Presumably, Ellen White believed there was only one Isaiah because that whole discussion wasn't even a discussion when she was around. And so when she was writing, she would have never addressed it because the question never came up. So it's not because she somewhere said there was one Isaiah that I believe that. I do not base my belief that the whole of Isaiah could easily have come from a single hand upon something Ellen White wrote about Isaiah, but rather by the interesting parallels I personally find between the eras in the writings of Ellen White and the eras of the writings of Isaiah. Think about this. Early Isaiah was very apocalyptic, full of visions with lots of imagery. Early Ellen White, very apocalyptic, full of visions with imagery. Middle Isaiah, turning to a focus on a redeemer to come. Middle Ellen White, somewhere mid-1880s for a stretch. All of a sudden, there's this focus on Jesus. Desire of ages, thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, Christ Object Lesson, Steps to Christ. All these books come out of that middle time. Then late Isaiah, a turn to the idea of the final restoration, Late Ellen White, lots of writing about the final restoration. So what I would say to you is this. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the themes and content of a single prophet are static throughout their life. How many of you have not changed any of your views since the first day you believed? How many of you don't have different themes you think about in your mind than when you first started? We grow. And if someone is a prophet for a long time, I sure hope they grow. Would be a tragedy to think they wouldn't. We have proof enough in the writings of Ellen White that a prophet lives and grows and the Lord crafts new messages through a prophet throughout a prophet's life. But back to the main point at hand. We need to ask ourselves, to whom is the prophet referring and what does this message mean? Who are Zion and Jerusalem, and what does the future hold for them? It seems the Lord has great concern for Zion and Jerusalem. Verse 6, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. All right, a lot of imagery here again. Watchmen on the walls. That's not necessarily an image that we're fully familiar with from experience in our day. But maybe we can imagine a parallel. You see, in the days when these words were written, cities had walls. And on those walls were soldiers who spent their nights watching for raiders. And while there are likely places in the world still like this, such a reality is not really the norm for most of us. Our cities don't tend to have walls. Yet, we're not completely free of a need of protection, are we? In a practical sense, watchmen on the walls in our day are kind of like police officers who patrol the streets at night while we sleep in our beds. It's that time when we are most vulnerable, still living in a land 
where bad things happen, such as thieves breaking into your house in the night, stealing the fruits of your labors, and threatening your lives. In the context of the passage we're considering, it seems the posting of the watchman by the Lord is an important step in the process of the vindication of the land, suggesting that at the time the prophecy is written, the vindication has not yet come. And this point is further supported by these words. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. So we see in these two verses, there is, there is work. There is the work of guarding and warning that's assigned to the watchman. But then there's also a work assigned to those in the land who call upon the Lord. They are told to give the Lord no rest until he has established Jerusalem, until he has vindicated the people. So what is this great work of vindication that the Lord will accomplish for his people? What will life after victory look like? Verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies, and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Is there anything more frustrating in life than working hard for something, and then just when you get it done, somebody comes and takes it away? Isn't this the futility of life, the futility of labor as it is? The promise here is nothing short of the guarantee that the futility of life and labor is going to end, and by the blessing of the Lord, the inhabitants of Zion will one day enjoy all the fruits of their labor without any fear of loss. That's a good day. No need for walls around the country in that day to keep the unwanted outsiders from wreaking havoc. And no need to lock your house doors and your car doors to keep the unwanted insiders from wreaking havoc. Did you know there's been a rash of break-ins of cars in our area? Did you hear about this? Make sure you lock your doors. Unless you think I'm taking political sides here. Based narrowly on our text today, one would have to admit that until all things are restored, walls are not always a bad thing. We'll fix it in a minute. <laughs> and even though this is a house dedicated to God, after we take up the offering, they put it in a safe, and we lock all the doors when we leave. Are we being hurtful? Or are we being smart? But now that I've riled us all up, maybe the best thing we can do is just finish. Can we find a way to wrap this and apply it to our lives? I sure hope, I hope so. And what about banners? We haven't seen a banner yet. Well, here we go, 62.10. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner. There it is. Raise a banner for the nation. There's the banner. 
It appears as a part of very clear instructions. These are instructions given as imperatives to the inhabitants of Zion, the people of Jerusalem. This is the group to whom this prophecy is about. And what are they supposed to do? First, pass through the gates themselves. They are to go inside and be a part of the people, the people to whom the promise is to come. But then second, There is a missionary component stated here as well. Those who pass through to be the insiders need to then turn around and prepare the way for others. They're supposed to build up the highway, throw away the stones, make an obvious path, and make that path simple. And then just so the people know where to go, they are to raise a banner for the nations, not a banner for the insiders a banner for the nations so that the outsiders can see where to go, so that the Gentiles, so that the barbarian mongrels, if you remember from a few weeks ago, know where to go. Dare we say, so that the immigrants know where to go. See, here's the thing. The Bible talks about walls, but the Bible also talks about gates. So we shouldn't just talk about walls and we shouldn't just talk about gates because there are times and places for both. And we cannot allow ourselves to get caught in the narrow arguments of the world. So back to the main question of the whole passage. To whom is the prophet referring and what does this message mean? As is so often the case with the prophets, what the text is truly saying is bigger than the specific words. So what have we learned? Here's what we've learned. Isaiah 62 tells us that there are a people referred to as Zion and Jerusalem. These people have suffered and felt unwanted and abandoned and alone. But a day is coming when they will no longer be left in their sorrow and suffering, but will instead be vindicated by their God who seeks them and loves them and desires after them like a bridegroom for a bride. For now, those people live in danger, but God has not left them without help. He has appointed watchmen on the walls and he's given them the task of continually praying for deliverance. And God has promised the coming of a day when the futility of their current lives is past and all their efforts are rewarded. And then these people are called to enter through the gates and to call others through the gates as well. Now one could seek to apply this strictly to ancient Jerusalem, though it seems far less of a stretch to me to realize Zion and Jerusalem are figurative terms, referring in general to the people the Lord is seeking. And what is the message the Lord is seeking? Verse 11, the Lord has made proclamation to just a few people in a small room. Is that what it says? No, who is the Lord seeking? 
The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your Savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. Now you can determine for yourself what you think this message means, but I'll tell you what I think it means. I believe this is nothing less than the Lord revealing to the prophet Isaiah the realities of the glory of the second coming of Jesus some 680 years before Jesus came the first time. It's amazing, isn't it? Now to say that is not to suggest that Isaiah necessarily understood this when he wrote it down. But then when was God ever dependent upon us to fully understand in order to still use us to communicate? And let me take the implication one step further. I'm not going to suggest I know exactly what this text meant to the people in Isaiah's day or during the time when Jesus was here the first time or even what it's meant throughout the Christian era up until today. You see, that's the Holy Spirit's job to direct the Word to our hearts in every era. So I don't know what the message was to mean for them, but I think I know what it means for us. It means Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he's going to set everything right. But until he comes, we need to be busy because there are some tasks for us here. We need to be watching out for the dangers of our day. Watchmen on the walls, not because there's no danger, because there is danger. We need to be praying for the deliverance to come. That's what the people were to do. We need to be raising the banner of Jesus, the one who comes, and we need to make a straight and easy and safe path so that the ends of the earth can come and join us as we wait for Jesus' return. All the while living in hope and confidence that the Lord Jesus loves us and longs after us even more than we long for him. That's a really good message, isn't it? Why would we want to be doing anything else? Jesus is our banner. He said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is our banner, and he is our restorer, and he has promised to vindicate and to restore, and we believe we are living in those days just before the restoration. What a time it is for us to be alive. What a chance it is for us to be participating in the mission of God in this day. We're living in the new name time. When the vindication has come, so comes the new name. Do you remember when we were talking about the churches, the church of Pergamum, I think it was, that one of the things the overcomers receive is a new name? Yeah, that's this time. The time when God moves and acts in so powerful a way in the world and in our lives that the old names just don't work anymore. What a time to be alive.
And what a time to be participating in the mission of God. You're participating, right? Because there's plenty for all of us to do. Pass through. Pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise the banner for the nations. Keep watch. Pray. Hold up the banner of Jesus and make it easy for the nations to be drawn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that speaks to us through your word. We thank you for prophets who faithfully write without even always knowing the full meaning of what they've written. We thank you that the fullness of the ages have come. We pray that your vindication will be revealed, that you will come and deliver your people, and that those to the ends of the earth who can hear your voice will come and be joined to your people, and we will all go forward into your kingdom forever. In Jesus' name, amen.